Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. This is your host, Aaron Allgood, social impact strategist, consultant, and supporter of sustainability efforts. This week on Rise and Rouse, you'll hear my conversation with Alex Freed, who's the co-founder of the Post Landfill Action Network, also known as PLAN, and the director of the Atlas Zero Waste Project. Alex is one of the most driven people I know, and he has dedicated his career and honestly his life to creating a more sustainable future. We have been friends for a number of years, and I was delighted to bring him on to talk more about his work. Alex shares his journey from student activist to nonprofit co-executive director to now heading up Atlas, Plan's certification program for college campuses. Our conversation is a deep dive into the intricacies of what it means to achieve zero waste, as well as the unique way in which Plan lives its values through its organizational structure and operations. If you care about sustainability, this is a great episode to expand your understanding. Let's jump in. I wanted to just tell folks how we first met each other and... I can't remember how we first met each other exactly. It was in the activist circles here in Dover, New Hampshire. It was our first kind of, I think, foray of of meeting one another and starting our friendship. Yeah, I've also thought about this. I do not remember the exact <laughs> day or moment. Um, but I guess it's worth saying that we both work out of a collaborative office space in Dover called the Dover Area Solidarity Hub or the Dash office. And we've been there for like, seven, eight years now. So we've been friends and collaborators for a long time. And we try to go on walks every Friday too. <laughs> yeah, it's on the calendar. Like, yeah, it doesn't always happen, but it's there. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's one of those, I think about our friendship as just being, it's just so easy. And we talk about all sorts of like deep stuff, especially like around the work that we both do. And it's, yeah. and it's I just super appreciate the the friendship that we have. Yes. So, Alex, what led you to start the Post Landfill Action Network and the Alice Zero Waste Project? Yeah, so that is a long trajectory, um, but <laughs> to try to make it short, um, I got involved in activism and organizing in high school. So for me, that was sort of the 2007 to 2009 era. The spark for me was uh, anti-war protests around the Iraq War. And then a lot of sort of energy around the Obama election, but also a clear awareness, if folks remember back to 2008 election, that even though Obama, you know, was the better than option and a great president was uh, still looking to advance the Afghanistan war and it sort of run on that platform. And so I was I was, you know, separate from the sort of environmental work that I do today, the my entry point into this space was the anti-war movement. And so I got very involved in New Hampshire Peace Action. I was the youngest member of the board of directors for New Hampshire Peace Action. We organized student protests and um, we did a bunch of other events and some conferences and things like that. The tie-in for me from an environmental perspective is like, you know, we live in a world of finite resources and wars like that are often driven by our drive for acquiring resources or taking other people's resources. And uh, what led me to environmental activism was sort of drawing the tie to our um, unnecessary overconsumption of resources um, in our day-to-day lives, especially in our disposable lives, um, is a driving factor in sort of a 
<laughs> global capitalist uh, need for sort of a, a constant consumption of those resources. So in high school, at the same time as doing that activism, I also was working with friends to um, work with the high school cafeteria to switch away from disposable plastic silverware to reusable metal silverware. That was like my first environmental sort of effort. Fast forward a couple of years, I went to the University of New Hampshire. And at the end of my freshman year, I was overwhelmed seeing dumpsters overflowing with uh, usable stuff, furniture, electronics, clothing, dishware, decorations, school supplies, food. And there wasn't really a solution for that. It was just, you know, tons of stuff being sent to a landfill. And, you know, thinking about that sort of global use of resources, it's like if there's a microwave and it's heading to a landfill, it's going to sit in a landfill for a thousand years. That is an immense waste, not only for the land, for the, for the microwave, but also there is now an extraction process in order to get the resources that then go into the production, which requires resources, which then go into the, you know, packaging and shipping and then the eventual consumption. And then the very short term consumption in this case and disposal and back to square one of that sort of linear consumption framework of a microwave or, any other given product in our day-to-day lives. And so I, I wanted to work with my friends to solve that problem. And so my sophomore year, we created a program at UNH called Trash to Treasure, or T2T. And uh, our goal with that program was to create a self-sustaining model. So we fundraised $10,000 and we set up drop-off locations across campus and we rented trucks and we set up storage containers and we collected all the stuff that students otherwise would have thrown away. We stored everything over the summer. And then we held a yard sale during move and weekend. And the revenue from the sale, the goal was to make enough money to pay for next year's trucks and storage containers and things like that, which we did. We brought in close to $12,000 in the second year, which was my senior year. Um, so the first sale was my junior year because the first collection was my sophomore year. Sort of worked through the college timeline, right? So the second program was collection junior year. Second sale was start of my senior year. Uh, the program made over twenty thousand dollars and started to gain some attention. We had like a front page article in the Boston Globe, um, and that was super exciting. And so that is what led to Plan, which is during my senior year, I was a double major in political science and philosophy. I had no background in sustainable environmental sustainability classes work or in business, but we. My friends and I sort of set out to figure out what would a structure of an organization look like with the goal of helping other campuses model that same program. And we worked with some really fantastic advisors at UNH who we kind of cobbled together into an ad hoc committee. And we created the framework of what eventually became PLAN, the Post-Landfill Action Network. We launched PLAN right after I graduated college, uh, May of 2013. So we're celebrating 10 years, which is very exciting. Um, and so in our first year, we, we worked with nine college campuses. We replicated the model successfully. In our second year, we replicated the model on a 40 college campuses and it just kind of snowballed. It just took off from there. So fast forwarding to today and, uh, you know, let's get back into Atlas Zero Waste in a minute, but to today, um, we're, uh, established national nonprofit organization. We've worked with over a thousand colleges and universities across the United States and Canada, and in some cases, some international as well. We run the annual Students for Zero Waste Conference, which pre-COVID, we had about 500 students at that event, sort of working back towards hybrid models and looking to bring it back. We uh, run a bunch of campaigns, like we try to get campuses to sign a pledge, the Break Free from Plastics Campus Pledge, um, to eliminate single-use disposal plastics. 
We do a lot of advising of campuses and a wide variety of contexts around zero waste initiatives. We run what we call the Beyond Waste Leadership Certification, which is a digital leadership certification program. We currently have 10 full-time salaried staff. We're in the organizational discussions about possible hiring of more. And my role has shifted in a lot over the 10 years. Um, I started as the executive director and then the co-executive director. And then I stepped down a couple of years ago from the executive team. And I am now the director of the Atlas Zero Waste Program, which is what I do now within PLAN. It's always, I, I mean, I know that history, but it's always like fun for me to hear you tell it again, because it's just, there's so many different, there's just, it's like so amazing what you've been able to build over the last decade. Thank you. It's been a wild journey and there are so many facets to it throughout those 10 years. Um, you know, moments of like, oh God, we're running out of money <laughs> or, uh, you know, incredible opportunities like partnering with Patagonia to do a 22 college 90 day cross country tour and, and everything in between. Like just, it's been, it's been an incredible opportunity. I once saw a keynote speech where it was, it was one of the I don't know, years ago now at New Hampshire Businesses for Social Responsibility. Um, and the woman talked about how like we tell our success stories in like such a linear way. We don't actually, we don't talk about like how like, you know, just circuitous and like curvy, like there's, I think of like the good place, Jeremy Baramies, like when they try to explain that concept, that's like what success stories are, but it's, they're not linear. We, we say like, oh, we did this, this happened and then yay success. It's not a formula like that. It never, it never actually plays out in that kind of a way. So that being said, I mean, I would love for, we're going to get back, we'll get back to Atlas in a minute, but like, tell me some of the challenges, the ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of um, also a keynote uh, many years ago. I think it was also New Hampshire Businesses for Social Responsibility. Uh, Gary Hirschberg, the CEO, chairman of um, Stonyfield Farm, gave a keynote where he referred to what he called the emotional roller coaster of entrepreneurship, which, yeah, sort of is in the same vein of what we're talking about. Like this experience of, you know, you're in this place where there's so many opportunities ahead of you and you have to be really careful not to embody mission creep, which if you're familiar in the nonprofit sphere, it's like, be really clear on sort of what your vision and your mission is. And don't just chase money for the sake of chasing money, which ultimately leads you to falling outside of that mission. Um, because then you're sort of spreading yourself too thin, and you're sort of watering down what the mission's goals are. But sometimes it's really hard to sort of see money on the table, and not run down that path. And in the zero waste space, we get that all the time. It's like, We've carved out that our mission is to work with college campuses, but you know, zero waste is needed in municipalities, zero waste is needed in elementary schools, it's needed in nursing homes, it's needed for major festivals. And so what's what's been really fascinating and challenging is like we're building the organization, we're building our network. And so we're doing a lot of networking, a lot of handing out business cards, a lot of going to events, a lot of talking to people, um, a lot of traveling around the country, a lot of visiting cool places. And throughout that process, we're also trying to fundraise and we're trying to sort of build, you know, a, a, a stable base. And yeah, I, <laughs> there are just a lot of times where I sort of, you, you take a buckshot approach to fundraising, right? You're like, I'm going to apply for this grant and this grant, try to meet with this donor, and I'm going to go visit this facility in order to build a relationship with this person. And when I look back on all of it, like the path as you described, like the linear path of sort of where we got from there to here, I never in a million years would have been able to like roll the dice and predict that that's what it would have been. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, 
the things I thought would have worked out didn't work out. The things that I didn't think would have worked out somehow wound up being the things that worked out. You know, we had to buckshot in order to like somehow make our way through. There were all these scenarios where like in the very beginning, very, very beginning, the first year we said, you know, okay, what do we need to survive? Like, what does it take to sort of have a salary, build a website, you know, basic, basic level of expenses. What's the least amount of money we need? And we set a goal of raising $75,000, which is low for a nonprofit startup in its first year. And we were like, we're going to do, you know, a, a Kickstarter. Those are successful. People love investing in <laughs> Kickstarters. We put all this work into making a video and put all this work into doing the thing. And uh, <laughs> we put the goal on the Kickstarter of 50000 And that page is still up. You can look at it. We raised $10,300. And we were like, okay, (laughs) we're screwed. (laughs) Where are we going to go from here? And then I learned all of the, you know, it was like, like through conversations, I wound up connecting the people at foundations. And it turns out that like, there's other ways to fundraise, right? And you sort of, you unlock these things. Like there's, there's these things called cultivation events. And so we started to come up with a way of doing a cultivation event and inviting certain high net worth individuals to the cultivation event in order to try to build a relationship with them. And we started building relationships with other partners and we wound up building relationships with some campuses who invested in us early on. And we cobbled together a thousand here and 3000 here and 5,000 here. And we like, you know, scraped the bottom of the bank account (laughs) for a year and a half until we were able to pull it together to make it work. So $75,000 was raised. It was not raised all at once. It was raised in tiny increments. But you had the vision. So you were able to like, you you were able to keep working towards that. There's never a time where I talk to a non, like anybody who's been an executive director that it doesn't, like fundraising doesn't come up. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that that's one of the things we've touched on so far. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Atlas because this is like a totally not a new initiative because you've been working on it for the last couple of years, but it's starting to gain momentum and it's like pretty cool what it's all about. Yeah, it's been really fun. I feel very fortunate to be able to be doing this work. The reason why we call it Atlas, so like going back to the beginning of like, what is this project is uh, back in 2014 to 2017 was when we were really growing the organization and we were building a lot of relationships. And part of that was visiting college campuses and touring facilities and getting the opportunity to sort of be on the ground, like in the trenches with staff who are doing actual waste reduction work and learning about how those systems work. And so we had an opportunity to visit some of the campuses who are often sort of considered at a national scale, like the sort of quote unquote top sustainable campuses. So Arizona State University and CU Boulder and the University of California schools like Santa Barbara and Berkeley and the University of Oregon, and American University in DC, and like a bunch of other campuses like that. And we documented back in 2017, 32 college campuses in the US that had a public facing goal of achieving zero waste by 2020. And so we were like, great, this is exciting. Like, you know, this movement is moving, like we're on track. Um, And then we would talk to the staff who are doing that work, like not the presidents, not the marketing teams, but like the staff, every single one of them were like, help. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why they have that goal. We're not going to reach that goal. That's not going to happen. And there was a lot of frustration at that level. Um, and 
I don't want to say like unanimous across the board, like obviously every campus is different and every person on those campuses are different and sort of where those campuses are at is a little bit different, but we heard this all over the place. And so one of the biggest things that campuses said was there's this sort of widely understood concept. If you, if you look at not only college campuses, but if you look at businesses, if you look at municipalities, if you look at stadiums, anywhere that has ever said we have a goal of achieving zero waste, the fine print of that is what we mean by that is 90% diversion. And so I don't know where the origin of that phrasing came from, but that has somehow become the sort of widely accepted concept. And a lot of the staff that we talked to said the diversion metric is not a measurement of zero waste and we need to get rid of it, but we don't have a better solution. Can you find us a better solution? And so we kicked off this research in 2017 with the goal of trying to understand why is the diversion metric not a good measurement and what is a good measurement? And we went into it pretty blind. Like we really, we didn't have an expected outcome. We weren't working towards something at that point. We were just doing the research. Our three findings from that research were number one, the diversion metric does not measure zero waste. So that's true. And we can talk about that. And the second thing that we found with this is that to achieve zero waste, there needs to be a move towards standardization. And by standardization, I mean standardized purchasing systems, standardization of dishware, standardization of compostables, standardization of bins and signage, standardization of communication across the board. And what we see on college campuses is a wide difference of those things, different items purchased by different dining providers and different bins and different buildings. And then what we learned, so like our third kind of big takeaway is college campus bureaucracy, the ways in which colleges are managed um, significantly limit their ability to achieve zero waste at that scale. And so it was interesting to sort of take away those three main points and then figure out like, what is the solution to those three points? A lot of that had to do with like, when we looked at what college campuses had created in order to achieve zero waste, they had written what they referred to as a zero waste roadmap. So a lot of those campuses had zero waste roadmaps. When we analyze those roadmaps, if you sort of take a step back and say, you know, what is a zero waste campus at scale? What does that look like? Not that you necessarily can put a number on it, but if you were to say it's 100%, all the zero waste roadmaps that we analyzed brought campuses to like 40 to 60%. And so we were like, there's a huge gap here. Like they're missing significant chunks of the waste system in their analysis and in the ways that they're managing these programs. And that was what led to us calling it Atlas was sort of the like hokey, like, you don't need a roadmap, you need an atlas. <laughs> like it needs to be a it needs to be a holistic system. And that stuck with us. It just kind of became the way that we started talking about it. So that was how we came up with Atlas Zero Waste. I would love to hear a little bit more about how the how Atlas actually works. And um because you spent a couple of years kind of looking through and figuring out what the right metrics were, like developing what does this, you know, developing this into a certification program. And like, which was paired with like consulting and you're centering students at the, you know, throughout the whole thing too. So that's kind of what I want to talk about is um, just a little bit more about the specifics of what Atlas actually does, but then also like, why, why did you create it in the way that you did? Yeah, for sure. So um, if you're curious to understand why diversion doesn't work, we have a blog post (laughs) called five reasons why the diversion metric doesn't measure zero waste. But to get to your point, you know, we wanted to create a better metric, right? And so we were looking at like what incentivizes campuses to make systemic changes and how do you do holistic analysis of campus systems? And 
where we walked away from that was like certification programs, like build, you know, sort of a, a, a golden standard, be realistic about what that golden standard is. Right now, we've done assessments of over 50 college campuses and the top scoring campus scored 73%. The average scoring campus scores in the 40% range. So like, yeah, the gold standard is like pretty high bar, right? But we want to sort of incentivize working towards that high bar and then create institutional competition for campuses to actually be comparing themselves against each other and working towards that high bar system. And that is how other initiatives, whether it's like um, sustainability or, I don't know, there's a wide range of sort of social change initiatives where like certification is sort of the standard that you can sort of put a rubber stamp on and say, we've been third party assessed and we are doing this the right way, right? So that's part of it. And then to your point, our mission as an organization from the very beginning, going back to like the story I told earlier, is student-led programs. It's, you know, our whole focus has been how do we, as an organization, provide support through the Students for Zero Waste conference, through the Beyond Waste Leadership Certification, which is a certification for students, um, through our advising and membership system, which is all focused on helping students grow these cool programs. And the challenges that we faced were when students sort of hit this, like, you know, roadblock, like, they could advance initiatives on college campuses to a certain point, but the certain point that they hit was the bureaucracy. It was, you know, we could get compost sort of piloted in one location, but getting campus-wide collection of composting requires complicated interdepartmental logistics where students are sort of not given an open door into that conversation. And that's true for the wide variety of other solutions. You know, how do you establish electronic waste collection in residence halls when it's only available to staff behind the scenes? How do you establish reusable to-go container programs in all dining facilities when it means working in partnership with athletics and housing and the library and the, the cafe and the library and all these other departments that gets kind of complicated and also catering, also events and all these other stuff. So we experienced a lot of advising of students and working with students up until a roadblock and then experiencing the same frustration they were feeling of like, we can't move forward. And then at the same time, we were doing all of this research and building this sort of program and realizing like there is a way to build an on-ramp between these two things where our advising of students should be centralized around how to problem solve, how to be a change maker, right? And if we are sort of on the side working on this question of how come campuses can't achieve zero waste and what is the gap, we need to both figure that out and then also figure out how to on-ramp students into that program and then turn it into something that students lead and drive. And so for the first couple of years between 2017 and 2020, we tested this initiative. We tested our assessment. We tested some of our consulting work in ways where we had students sort of interning with us, helping us build some components of it, helping us with the testing of it, but not in the way that we see them now, which is we, we refer to them as fellows. So the students were sort of involved, but not in the same way. Once we launched, what we did launch was the Atlas Zero Waste Fellowship Program. And so the fellowship program is that the fellows that we work with are hired by their campus. For some campuses that can't afford it, we have a movement building fund. So we also often hire students for this program. But the requirement is that students are paid to do this work. And the fellows are trained by us 
in a cohort. So we'll do assessments of five, eight campuses at a time in a single semester. And each campus will put forward one to three fellows from their campus. And so we'll develop sort of a cohort of, you know, 10 to 20 fellows. And then those fellows will work collectively to assess their campuses. So we train them, we license them to use this assessment tool. Um, and then we do weekly check-ins and workshops with them to work them through the process of conducting this assessment on their campus. And we teach them how to be consultants. We teach them how to how to interview stakeholders, how to assess answers, how to sort of um, navigate an assessment like this, um, how to do research on the questions that come up throughout this process. We teach them how to score this, and then we audit their scores. And then we work with them to draft the first draft of the report, and then we finalize the report for the campus. There's also a second and a third stage to this project, which we can get (laughs) into. But to answer your question, it's front and center for us that this work is done by students and that students are being given job training opportunities to learn about holistic zero-waste systems and consulting um, to be able to take that out of, you know, the experience post-college. Yeah, and it's a huge, like, it's it's such a big, like, responsibility for the students to kind of take that on and to, and to run with it. And it's, like, such an amazing learning experience for them, too. Have there ever been a time when you've been particularly proud of something that the students did when you were, you know, working with them as they're working with their with their colleges and universities? Yeah, I mean, uh, always. And <laughs> that's like what's so fun, right? I, like, so each, each of the stages of this project, and I think I want to get a little bit into stage two. So the, the idea of this project is that we don't just want campuses to conduct a holistic assessment and then have the report sit on a shelf, right? Like the idea is that we want to empower students and empower campuses to overcome these barriers. and we've developed a three-stage process where in stage one, they do this assessment. In stage two, they build a vision for zero waste. And in stage three, they move that into an action plan. Um, and the, the fellows drive that work throughout the whole thing. To your question, all of this work I see as sort of a living, breathing experiment. And I really enjoy sort of being able to see the fellows as partners in this experiment. So Stage one has now been going on for a while, and it's a little bit less experimental, but there's always things that we're changing. But like in the early stages of stage one, or in the early beginnings of stage one, it was, you know, it's just a couple of campuses, it was just a couple of fellows. And we were really clear with those fellows, like, you're the first ones doing this. So like, we want your feedback, please give us your feedback. Like, Was that question confusing that you asked the stakeholder? Did you have trouble navigating that dynamic? Like, all the experiences that you have, we want you to tell us about them because we learn so much from that. And then we get to sort of change things and then we get to apply that to the next iteration of campuses. And so, you know, the moments when fellows have come with like really incredible ideas, things that we now have as like a standard part of our format that they came up with, sometimes even like sending us a draft template being like, I think you should use this as like the first step. And we're like, that was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. Um, Another piece of this is like, in the second stage, the fellows are in a position where they're facilitating stakeholders um, through visioning, which is something I'd love to get into. And it's really complicated um, in terms of like how we navigate that sort of facilitation, because um, I, I say it's complicated because trying to get 25 to 30 stakeholders to agree to anything is always difficult. 
having students do that of their administrators is like even more difficult. So it's been really fun to sort of learn how to do that. But moments of pride definitely come in when we do all of this training and prep up front and the fellows are like maybe a little bit nervous heading into it. And then they get into the conversation and the conversation is like a little bit rocky because there's a couple of people who are like, I don't know if it's going to work or they're showing some resistance, but then like they work through it and they get to the other side. And the moments afterwards where the fellows are like, I can't, I can't believe that worked. Like, you know, like, like these moments where like we start the conversation and the director of dining is like, I don't want to switch to reusable dishware. And we have to navigate that conversation. And the end of the meeting, the director of dining signs off on a document that says, here's a vision for the campus to switch to reusable dishware. And then we do the debrief with the fellows and they're like, that was awesome. Um, it's just like really, really rewarding. Yeah. It's like so real too. Like I, you know, one of the things that I've done is taught at the B impact clinic at UNH, which is um, a real life, like experiential program for students who are trying to, who are helping cl- uh, companies with, you know, trying to become B Corp certified um, or recertified. And that's something that's like really, you know, one of the things that I took away from that is just that like students, when they're given something like super real world to be able to go and do like they love it and they run with it. They're like so very, very excited about being like entrusted with something that important. And then they surprise themselves with like how like kick-ass they've done. It's just, I don't know, that whole process like always gets me. There's a, a couple of things that plan does that is really different. I think from a lot of other nonprofit organizations one, I mean, you just are running like super cool programs that are really super very impactful. That's not different from a lot of nonprofits, but it's just you're doing it in a way that is, you know, I think different from a lot of the other models out there. But you also have, you know, a distributed leadership structure. You have a super complex consensus decision-making process. And those are things that are not typical. They're very different from kind of the traditional ways in which things are have done. And tradition is super rooted in things like white supremacy culture and systems of oppression. We could totally go down that road. But, you know, like, it's so different. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, like, what was for, like, to make those decisions and I guess how it, like, plays out in the day-to-day work of the organization. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long journey, I think. So from the start of the organization, I think we always came at it with the right intentions, even if we didn't. You know, I I don't think we've been perfect along the way. We're not perfect now. We're not going to be perfect in two years. But like going back to the very beginning, you know, we we came at this from the perspective of like being frustrated college students feeling like uh, our voices didn't matter and wanting to create an organization that centered students and student leadership and continued to value the voices of those students throughout the lifetime of the organization. So it was like, you know, early on, we had sort of an idea that uh, we'd always have students on our board, that, you know, we would create exciting and really engaging internship programs. We, we call them the planternship program because we love, our, you know, <laughs> the plan puns. Um, our staff are the plaf and so on and so forth. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we, uh, you know, it's like our our interns are never going to be like getting coffee and like, you know, like they're always going to be like creating something cool, given their own space to do their own research. And also we're going to ask them for feedback. We're going to engage them in strategic visioning. We're going to bring them into 
you know, broader conversations about the future of the organization in ways that work for them that aren't like asking them to go sort of way outside the boundaries of their defined role, but like to really create space for that type of engagement. And I think that was like a pretty early on part of our structure. And we were trying early on to be horizontal. I don't think we were perfect at it. And then in the last five or so years, we've made a significant shift towards actual horizontal structures. It's been a slow process. Yeah. What's up? Oh, I was going to say, can you explain, because I didn't explain distributed or horizontal. Can you explain that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like what I mean by horizontal is like most organizations are hierarchical, right? So there's, there's a executive leadership and there's sort of structures of decision-making where folks that are lower in the organization are just sort of beholden to the decisions that are had ha- that happen above them. So back in May of 2018, we released a document on our website, um, a page on our website and a document called Our Mandate for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which like in total is 10 pages of text. And that was after a year and a half of like internal work and research working through sort of characteristics of white supremacy culture in nonprofit organizations, one of which that is heavily criticized as like paternalistic decision making and things like that. And we started to restructure a lot of the different ways that we worked, both, you know, everything from like our hiring policies to um, the ways that we make decisions as an organization, the way that we sort of move and flow, the way that we like work externally. All of this is on our website. You can take a look at this if you're curious because it's like too much to go into in detail right now. Um, And then sort of since then, we've been working off of that as a guiding platform and then just sort of building on it and now have other things that we're working on as well. But the sense of it is like early on, we developed a system of co-executive directorship. So pretty early on, I was not the executive director. I was a co alongside another executive director. And we're slowly chipping away at even the roles of co-executive directorship. So we've been working towards this kind of concentric circling model that you know some organizations have started to model where there are staff on different committees and those committees report back to sort of the general committee. And so all of us that are full-time are on this general committee. And we're now at the point where pretty much every major decision that happens within the organization is voted unanimous consensus vote by all staff in the organization. And so like we as, you know, we have a we have a budget committee, for example, our budget committee reviews our budget every month, reviews our finances. And through that, we establish policy and then we propose that policy to the full team and then the full team takes a vote. And if there's a block, then we sit down with the person who blocked and we negotiate and we figure out what it takes to bring it to a full vote again. And then we go back and we do the full vote and we just go through this process over and over again, you know, we all know what each other's salaries are. We built a pay scale structure together. We all decide on what our benefits are. We decide on what hiring looks like. We're operating as a collective and have been for a number of years. And it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating experiment. And like, I think probably the most (laughs) fascinating part of it is that it works. Like (laughs) we are functioning, we're growing, we're doing well. We really don't experience significant challenges with it. There has been very few votes that have been shot down. And when they have been shot down, they've been eventually voted in after compromise. I think that the traditional sort of concerns around it, we figured it out through just sort of a slow and steady build. So it's been really interesting to sort of figure that out. I just, I, 
I think it's so foreign to so many organizations, like, because they're just kind of like, oh, yeah, those decisions get made up top. They trickle down. Nobody can make sense of decisions that have been why they've been made necessarily to be like so intimately involved in those that kind of a decision making process for all staff at all levels is <laughs> like groundbreaking. I feel like that sounds maybe that's like a little bit too hyperbolic, but it's just you you see it so few and far between really when it comes to nonprofit organizations. A lot of the organizations that I, you know, work with have an interest in being able to transition to that kind of a model. And they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're just going to sort out, you know, like you know, kind of the steps or whatever it takes to like do that. And then we're going to be fine. And I was like, oh no, this takes like many, many months. This is a process you undergo to to transition to that type of a model. You don't just like overnight, like institute in an, organi- in an organization. Yeah. I mean, it takes years, you know, I mean, yeah. I th- I'm trying to think back to like sort of how some of the earlier, like, like the idea that there isn't, um, so we, we have a standing Tuesday morning meeting. It's like the whole team gets together on Tuesday mornings, right? One of the really early things that we developed was there is a sort of structured agenda for how that meeting works, for how everyone on the team gives updates, sort of the key topic points that we want to hit on that are relevant to the overall organization. And now that that sort of, you know, structure is in place, this is like five, six years ago. Now that structure is in place, anyone can facilitate that. So there's no sort of like, you know, I think I think in the first few years, myself or maybe the co-director would traditionally facilitate the Tuesday morning check-in. And then it was like, well, we don't have to facilitate that. Like, you know, anyone can facilitate the Tuesday morning check-in. And so then it just became a rotation. And so, you know, someone is the facilitator. The person next in line is the note taker. And then next week, the person was note taker is facilitator. And the person next in line is the note taker. And so on and just kind of cycles through. And I think like that starts to break down those barriers of like sort of who's in charge, so to speak, like who leads, mm-hmm. right? And there's other, there's lots of areas in an organization where there's sort of, you look for leadership, but leadership doesn't necessarily have to be one or two people. It can be a committee. It can be all of us. Like all of our voices matter. Everyone, you know, should have a say sort of in the organization and the direction that we're taking. And there's, there's ways to sort of build process to all of it. So we have like this whole voting system, like the difference between thumbs up, thumbs middle, and thumbs down, or the difference between a vibes versus a vote. So sometimes we just do vibes, which is like, we're just sort of getting a feel for how people are at with this decision before we vote, because we want to sort of soft test it and sort of figure out who we need to be talked to or worked with, collaborated with. A vote can happen with people giving a thumbs middle, which means I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I'm not going to block it. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can pass a vote with seven ups and two middles and no downs. And that's okay. As long as the people who voted middle, their concerns are heard and reflected within the decision and they're sort of worked with as we sort of implement the project. So it, it's, yeah, it takes time to figure out your process, your voting process, your structure, your teams, your circles, <laughs> how all of mm-hmm. those things work together. Yeah, it took a long time. It's in that kind of work is important. You know, I think like we talk about budgets, like show your values. It's the same way. And like, I think you show your values through the way in which you've structured the organization, the way in which you operate the organization in every, every single which way really and truly. There's one of the other things that, you know, you, we've talked about before is this, the idea that you've transitioned from being the co-executive director to now being the senior director of the Atlas Zero Waste Project. 
that's like you don't hear many executive directors who are like, oh, yeah, cool. I'm just going to give that up and then transition over here. So I'd love to hear more about like, you know, the decision to do that and what that transition was like. Yeah, there's a lot to it. Um, but there's layers, right? So part of the layer is acknowledging my own positionality and privilege within the space, my power within the space. So like, I am a white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered individual. I use he, him pronouns. And that inherently holds a lot of power. Environmental nonprofits are largely led by people like me. So, you know, part of the DEI mandate that I referred to back in 2018, we were looking at sort of an analysis of our of ourself, of our staff, of our board, of, you know, we, we were predominantly, we still are a predominantly white organization that's shifted a little bit, but like, you know, there's definitely PWI dynamic for us as an organization. And while there are a lot of colleges that are predominantly white institutions, there's also a lot of colleges that are not. And like figuring out sort of not only how do we diversify and build systems for diversity, equity, inclusion within our team, but also how do we create space for a broader engagement of the student body writ large in the United States. So like, you know, to put that in context, in the United States, there's about 4,000 colleges and universities in the country. Uh, They serve 17.5 million students, but about 30% of those students attend what's referred to as an MSI, a minority serving institution. And under MSI designation, there are seven. So there's like historically black colleges, universities, there's also, there's also tribal colleges, and there's Hispanic serving institutions, etc. And so, you know, we were also sort of analyzing, like, who's coming to our conference, like, what's the comfort level of POC engagement with plan, broadly, right? So there's a lot to sort of unpack with that. But one of the many things that we did as an organization, besides sort of structural and functional and decision making, and sort of the ways that we run our events and things like that, is this was all happening at the same time. If you remember, I said earlier, our research for Atlas was in 2017. You know, as in the co-executive role, you wear a lot of hats, right? You're fundraising, you're managing staff, you're working with the board, you're managing current projects, you're managing side projects, you're managing new projects. I loved Atlas. I was super distracted. Um, I think in many ways, you know, to criticize myself, I was too distracted by Atlas as it was growing and neglectful of some other parts of my responsibility that I had as a co-executive director. All of that sort of came to a point where it was like, I think it makes sense for me to step down for a number of reasons within the organization. And we sort of had a big conversation about that. There were a number of folks in the team involved in that conversation, sort of playtesting ideas of like, what makes the most sense for me to move into? Does it make sense for me to leave? Does it make sense for me to join the board? Like what, where am I, you know, should I, should I just do some sort of fundraising consulting work? And there's some analysis in nonprofit leadership around the idea that founders, two things. One, founders are often not the best managers. Um, <laughs> yes. And I think that is very much true for me. I've gone through a lot of management training and I'm working at being a better manager, but I think it's not my inherent skill set. Like my inherent skill set is like to move quickly and to take a lot of risk and to like sort of jump to new ideas. Um, And that is not a really good way to have a stable team and to be supportive of a stable team. And I've learned a lot about that. And then I think like the other dynamic is 
there is a potential role for founders to step into what was described in a research article that we were looking at, where they were analyzing founder transitions, to step into a role where they, that sort of meets their area of expertise. And I think for me, Atlas, you know, sort of like advancing strategic systemic zero waste initiatives on college campuses really fits squarely into my area of expertise. And I feel really fortunate that sort of the stars aligned in that moment where it made the most sense for me to not step away, but to like step down and step adjacent into a position where I could basically begin to lead the startup of the Atlas Zero Waste Project within the startup that was now growing into a stable organization that was planned and create space for new leadership, both from a diversity, equity, inclusion perspective, but also from a like plan needed new leadership. Plan needed someone to stabilize the organization. And that wasn't where I was really putting my energy or my focus. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, the current co-executive team has done an incredible job like building systems and structure around the ways that staff are supported and the ways that staff collaborate with each other and the ways that staff have further created this sort of um, horizontal dynamic amongst all of us that I was not doing. Like I, I was, I was not a, doing a good job of that. So yeah, it's been really rewarding for me to be able to do that. Also really challenging. Um, it is definitely, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of dynamics for me to be very aware of myself in the spaces that I'm in because my voice holds historical power. I can't shake the fact that I have been with the organization for 10 years and that I have the founder title. And I am now just sort of a, a staff member alongside all other staff members. And so I have to be sort of conscientious of like not only my positionality and privilege and those sort of cards that I hold, but also like, I, you know, knowledge is power, like historical knowledge is power um, and historical relationships that I have are power. And so like, how, how do I hold all of those power in the room and then also be an equal voice alongside everybody else? required a lot of stepping back and working with some really incredible coaches. Like definitely have to give a nod to um, uh, a really amazing coach who really helped me a lot through this process. You can name drop because we can put it into the show notes. Might as well give her some love. Yeah. So she's (laughs) on our board. Her name is Marla Robertson and she dedicated an immense amount of time working with me to sort of coach me through that transition. And I'm incredibly grateful to her for that, for the time that we spent together. And she is still working with us. We're currently working with her as a consultant to redesign our staff feedback management system. Again, (laughs) we've done it once before. (laughs) We're doing it again because we want to, because we feel like we could do it better. And I'm not going to get into the staff because I know the intricacies of the staff management system from our conversations. So we won't get into that today because I think that would, because I, I also do think that it's quite interesting how you've designed that. But I want to ask you just given that you're working in the sustainability space and in the zero waste space, you know, it's not exactly an easy time to be doing that kind of work. I mean, I don't think it ever has been really because of just how challenging things are in the world. You know, how are you feeling hopeful and like, how do you keep doing this work? I think working with students definitely helps with being hopeful because like, you know, they're always aspirational and I love that energy and uh, I thrive off of it. But 
Plan has developed what we refer to as our theory of change. And the theory of change is based off of a an organizational theory that is uh, not ours. So there's a book called Beautiful Trouble. In Beautiful Trouble, they sort of break down a whole bunch of different sort of actions and tactics and things like that. And one of the things that they break down is, is sort of uh, theories of change. Our theory is of, our theory of change is called the points of intervention theory. And this is sort of like messaging that we use with students all the time. So the idea is, you know, so the world is fucked up, right? Like the world is like completely, there's lots and lots and lots of problems, especially for college students or sort of students coming into college. Um, you're sort of really at the stage in your life where you're being hit in the face left and right with all of the problems and sort of the realization of like how bad things really are. And that can be extremely overwhelming, if not depressing. And the points of intervention theory, basically, so if we use it to look at, you can look, you can use points of intervention for a bunch of different problems, but to use it in our context, we'll talk about the linear consumption economy. Um, I sort of referenced this earlier, talking about the microwave. So you have the extraction of resources. Um, production of goods, shipping and packaging, consumption, disposal, and that's sort of a linear system. You go back to square one to extract in order to keep the economy rolling. And everything that we touch, like our electronics in our pockets, the food that we're eating, the chairs that we're sitting on, like the walls around us, like it's all following that same linear consumption system. And then the points of intervention is like all of the ways that we can intervene in that system. And part of this is the realization that like nobody can do every one of those things. Everybody can do something, but like we need activists and organizers shutting down oil pipelines just as much as we need people, you know, establishing compost systems, just as much as we need people, you know, going to thrift stores or starting a thrift store or creating reuse initiatives or repairing electronics or and like just make that list go on and on and on. Literally thousands, like working on regulation, working on uh, renewable energy, redesigning products and packaging to be more sustainable. And so I think part of the messaging is to find the intersection between your passion and your skill set and to sort of figure out like, where do you most have passion for an intervention point? Do that, do that well, and sort of let go of the guilt and the um, anxiety of like, I'm not doing enough. Because like mm-hmm. all of us are doing enough if all of us are doing part of that intervention in, in our own way, in whatever that is, whether you're working with elementary education, whether, right, like the, whatever it is, like you're doing something to intervene. And so I said earlier, you know, my, I have this, my favorite hopeful quote is by Howard Zinn, who's a veteran, but then also anti-war activist in the 60s and 70s. And he also wrote the book, People's History of the United States of America, which is an incredible book about sort of human resistance. And he has this quote, which is, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence and to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. I love that. Yeah. 
it helps me kind of lead into my very, very last question, which is, what does it mean to you to give a damn? There's a lot of ways to interpret that question. I think I think I would say uh, giving a damn to me means doing more than just something that is good for me. It is thinking about things in a systemic way and thinking about how to make things more equitable and more accessible and more just in whatever way I can through my intervention points. So, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's like, I want to figure out how I can have sort of the biggest systemic impact that I can have using that sort of like intervention point concept. It's one of those things, I think, um, I've had so many different answers to that question. And I love your emphasis on like, like, we have to look at the systemic aspect of things and figure out where to intervene, because it's like, that's what feels like authentically about who you are, you know, and just the way that you approach the world. And from my understanding of knowing you over these years. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today. This is like such a great conversation. And I got to learn even more about plan and about Atlas and about you. And so it makes me it always makes me happy to do that. Yeah, Aaron, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. I've listened to the first three episodes because that's where I'm at in the timeline of this process. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really cool to see you putting this together. I'm excited for you. And I appreciate the opportunity to be a guest. Thank you to Alex Freed for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about his work, feel free to connect with him on LinkedIn and check out postlandfill.org. Check the show notes for links. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts. You never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Clary Morin and Yana Krasanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. 